One of the things I treasure about my Christian faith is that I, I feel us in a story. We are in a redemptive story, and we're in that great middle of the story, but we do have a sense of faith that it is going somewhere. And it's not going somewhere that we just kind of coast along, but we are active participants and equipped by the Holy Spirit to move us along in that direction. We're not just static. We are, we are going somewhere. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Marianne McKibben Dana is a writer, a free-range pastor, a speaker, and a leadership coach. Her most recent book is Hope, a user's manual. Marianne embarked on this book as a way of writing herself back to hope after a grueling few years of life and world events. In this episode, Marianne and I talk about hope that is not predictive, the difference between hope and optimism, and the ways that hope orients us toward the good, not necessarily toward success. Marianne McKibben Dana, I'm so glad to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Um, I really enjoyed your book, uh, Hope, a Ma- I say, hope a hope a user's manual. A user's manual. I was I was going to say hope a handbook. Hope a user's manual. We thought about hope a handbook, and I'm a sucker for a good alliteration. But yeah, right. Ultimately, went with user's manual. So, um, I love the way you frame the idea of hope, not in terms of expecting good outcomes or predicting, you know, not predicting or prognosticating. Um, but well, but what <laughs> if it's not if it's not prognosticating good outcomes? What what is hope? Mm-hmm. Well, the book really grew out of my own attempt to kind of write myself back into a sense of hope, and as readers of the book will see, that came out of COVID, which we all experienced together in different ways, but also walking with our oldest uh, daughter through a fairly debilitating depression and anxiety journey during high school Mm -hmm. and needing something to hold on to that was, of course, we had every hope that that Caroline would come out on the other side. But when you're in the middle of it, at least we felt like we really needed something that was going to give us enough manna for each day. Mm -hmm. And, And a lot of the ways we think about hope, especially in our own kind of uh, American culture, which can be very, uh, very sunny and optimistic, mm-hmm. uh, just wasn't serving us very well. Mm-hmm. And and I also, in in researching and writing the book and going through all of this on a kind of personal level myself, got to know a lot of thinkers and theologians who thought about hope in a different way that was really decoupled from outcome. A lot of those thinkers are coming from marginalized communities or communities of color that that really ground a hope that that they really uh, find meaningful and and helpful around what is the right thing what what do we what do we value and how does that move us to act mm-hmm. and that there's a lot of hope to be found in that and then kind of leaving the outcome to the future that is unfolding. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what is what does hope mean for us right now, even when things aren't working out okay, and maybe they won't work out the way we hope they will? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you 
in the introduction there, you talk about the idea that that we we're all pretty familiar with the idea that we need to be paying attention to the you know that we're not called necessarily to be successful to be but to be faithful. And yet it's really hard to resist the belief that if we're faithful, then we God will reward us with success. That's right. That's right. And even those of us who I think would not resonate with the idea of the prosperity gospel, where that is such Uh a direct cause and effect kind of thing, that is still very much in the air and water in Mm -hmm. this culture. And, And that was something that I also had to confront is my own, especially when, you know, walking with Caroline, who struggled so much, as so many did, this was kind of pre-pandemic, actually, but we've only seen that mental health kind of challenge and crisis among young people accelerating right. in light of COVID. But I think it also is wrapped up in um, worries about the climate, you know, and and just standard of living for young people is not going to probably be what we experienced in terms right. of bettering you know, mm-hmm. our, our, our way of life. And so what do we do in, in the face of that? How do we respond? And, and I realized that I had a lot of implicit kind of, well, but I'm a good parent. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm very thoughtful about the way that I parent and mm-hmm. and my husband and I both, you know, we, we think a lot about what it means to be a good parent and to be supportive. And, and yet, mm-hmm. you know, how could this happen? And, realized I had some more of those tapes than I realized that I, mm. I wanted to be a faithful parent and, and felt like that meant my kid would kind of be put on this sort of trajectory of mm-hmm. success. And we really had to confront a different way of, of looking at what it meant to be supportive, what it meant to be hopeful. And, and ultimately I think came to a deeper place, but it's not, a sunny place. And I think uh, in our culture, we, we, we value the optimistic kind of flavors of hope yeah. that are around in our world. That's okay. So you, you use the phrase optimistic flavors of hope. <laughs> uh, there is, uh, you make it clear in your book that, that the, the Venn diagram between hope and optimism doesn't overlap completely. Right. Does it overlap some? Hmm. I think it can. And I guess where I kind of came to, and I'm still kind of working this out for myself because this is in talking to people, even after writing the book or in the process of writing the book, that was something that people really got very interested in and and maybe stuck on is what is the difference between hope and optimism? Mm -hmm. And for me, I think optimism as I think of optimism as something that people may have a natural tendency towards one or the other. You may be a naturally kind of optimistic person. You see the glass is half full, or you may see it as half empty, or you may mm-hmm. try to be a realist and say, well, yeah. it's it's half, <laughs> you know, and not put any value judgments on it. And I guess in thinking about hope from a faith perspective, even thinking about hope from a spiritual and psychological perspective, it feels like a muscle that we can mm. that we can exercise. And so I think you can be a hopeful pessimist. You know, mm. I'm not sure uh I mean I hear this from people who work in in environmental causes. I have a friend really good friend who says I'm not real optimistic that we're going to be able to stem some of the the 
the worst effects of, of what's happening in the climate, but I'm a hopeful person because that's what compels me to act and to act in spite of the evidence in some ways. And then there are others who I think are hopeful optimists who uh-huh. say, you know, I, I, I see a lot of reasons to, to think that things are going to be okay. We're, we're innovative as humans. We, you know, we, we know we come together when times are hard. And so those can align. So I guess I would say that optimism is not essential for hope. Mm-hmm. And I, feel like hope is a deeper resource for us to draw on, uh-huh. whether we're optimistic or not. Is is the optimist a pessimist? Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The the spectrum. Is that just a different spectrum from the hope and despair spectrum? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, yeah, it's almost like they're, they're on two different axes. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, because I think, again, I can imagine... Uh, pessimists who also their pessimism leads them to to not even try, you mm-hmm. know, to say mm-hmm. we're we're on a trajectory that's going nowhere good, and we might as well just disengage and, and enjoy life for as long as we, yeah. you know. And so, yeah, I think they there can be intersection points. Is there also, also a kind of optimism that causes me not to act? Uh, oh, okay. sure. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Someone else will, that'll, that'll just work out. Yeah. And I, and I talk in the book about that, you know, this kind of, and I, I think we're, we're seeing this now when we think about um, one of the things I, I feel like we've really seen in the last couple of years is that even our own democracy requires us all to be involved, you know, yeah. like we need to not take for granted that, that, you know, this is the way the world works and, I think because the Cold War ended and and you know we won. Um, I think there there could be a sense that we're all set now, and yeah. the values that we hold dear as as people as a nation, you know, putting it in the Christian context, you know, the the things that we value as as Christians, we need to fight for those things, mm-hmm. and and so yeah, I think that uh, optimism can also lead to inaction. It's a great yeah. it's a great connection. Yeah. I thought about Puddleglom a lot as I was reading your book. Ah, uh, you know, nice. he was such a pessimist, but had so much hope. Yes, right, right. Yep. Yeah, I love it. Well, yeah, and and you're speaking my language. I mean, one of the things I really loved in putting this book together. In fact, there's a whole section, as you know, about thinking about story mm-hmm. as a yeah. a conveyor of hope, and what mm-hmm. kind of story are we living? And and it's one of the things I treasure about uh, my Christian faith is that I I feel us in a story. We are in a redemptive story, and we're in that great middle of the story. Mm-hmm. But we do have a sense of faith that it is going somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's not going somewhere that we just kind of coast along, but we are active participants and equipped by the Holy Spirit to, to move us along in that direction. But um, we're not just static we are we yeah. are going somewhere. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, okay. Since since you mentioned it, I, I, and this idea of us participating in in hope, um, one of your uh, one of your formulations is hope is bound up in what we make real. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to hear you say more about that and how that interacts with the 
tradition, the Christian tradition, that God is doing something, you know, that, that our hope is in what God is doing that is going to surprise us, right? I'm, I'm doing a new thing, right? God says. Um, and it seems to me there's there's a a discontinuity between what we do and what God does. I, you know, I, I mean, I'll let you speak for yourself. I, I don't, I don't think you mean we act that our hope is in what we can accomplish on ourselves, right. but by right. ourselves and for ourselves. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit? What's the relationship between yeah, the hope in hope in something that God's going to do without our help and then our own mm-hmm. action? Yeah, as as you asked that question, I hadn't made this connection yet, but I'm I'm realizing how much the content of the book and my thoughts around hope are grounded in really learning a lot around missional theology back when I was first going to seminary to be a pastor and 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 studying these things and and my remembrance and what I appreciated about that kind of missional idea around vocation and around what the church is up to is that we are called to discern what God is up to in the world and to follow along to mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. to participate in what God's mission is for the for the world and so at best at our best we are able to discern that and 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 follow along in that that same direction. We we don't do it ourselves. I'm mm-hmm. I'm still a enough of a Calvinist to say that that we're never going to get this right. Mm-hmm. But we do do that work of of looking and listening, studying the 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 story, immersing in that that sacred sacred story and scripture and saying what does it have to say to us now and we we move along. Uh, in terms of your question about hope is what we make real. I'm I'm reminded, and I talk about him in the book. There's a, a kind of a hero of mine, um, a Lutheran pastor who lives in Bethlehem, uh, named Dr. Mitri Raheb, and he is uh, again a Lutheran pastor, but also president of a college there. And one of his, I would say, it's an article of faith, but it's certainly a a, a phrase, a mantra, if you will, is hope is what we do. Mm-hmm. And I love that in the in the sense that it kind of can have a double meaning. Because on the one hand, hope is what we do. We can understand that in the sense of that hope is the business we're in. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. writing is what I do. Yeah. Preaching is what I do. Hope is what we do. But also hope is bound up in action. Mm-hmm. It's not a feeling that everything's going to be okay. It's not a, a thought that we've rationalized our way to. It's what we make real. And that's, I, I think he really embodies that in the way he lives and and the the ministry that he does there with young people and with the the congregation he serves. Yeah. I, I love that insight that that it's um that hope has worked out, right? It's it's mm-hmm. that that's a big difference. I think maybe that's a, an important distinction between optimism and pessimism is is about how I feel. It's my perception, it's my view of the world or whatever. But it, it it's not necessarily what I do about it. Right. Right. And then hope, as you say, is something that motivates me to actually That's right. move forward. Because feelings can come and go. I mean, there were times when I felt optimistic that Caroline was going to get better. And I'll just say for the, the sake of the listeners that Caroline is now a sophomore at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia, and mm-hmm. is is thriving there. And And yet one of the things that we really had to face 
is how contingent everything is, you know, mm-hmm. that there are no guarantees that, whoop, you know, kind of wipe your hands and we took care of that. Um, yeah. the, this could continue and, and, and in some ways does from time to time kind of flare up again. And, and mm-hmm. so for me, what, what really I found captivating in, in kind of studying hope and how different thinkers and different theologians and, and philosophers look at hope is, okay, this is something I could do something with. Mm-hmm, and, you mm-hmm. know, one of the hats I wear is as a leadership coach, I work with a lot of pastors. And and one of the beautiful things about coaching and what makes it a little different from therapy or even spiritual direction or some other methodologies is at the end of that coaching conversation, it's like, okay, what are you going to do with this? Mm-hmm. You know, what are your next steps? And they may be really bite-sized. And, yeah. and a lot of times with hope, that's what we're dealing with is just what's the small next right thing. And, and yet that helps us move forward. Yeah. Speaking of the next right thing, um, I was found very helpful, the distinction between, um, oh, you don't have to look up my notes here. Oh, proximate purpose and aspirational purpose. Can you explain the, and, and you, I don't think that those phrases were original with you. Uh, you you yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll give I'll give credit where it's due. I think the original terms come from Gil Rendell, who's a kind of a church organizational consultant. But I ran across them in a book. So here's a so like a three degrees of separation. Gil mm-hmm. Rendell is the originator. Uh, Susan Beaumont wrote about it in her book, "How to Lead When You Don't Know Where You're Going," mm, okay. which I believe came out in 2019, and. I, I like to joke, it is the most fortuitously timed book in the history of books because it came out, you know, yes. some months before a, a global pandemic. But uh, but in, in essence, we think about proximate purpose and, and, and she talks about it as kind of the next right step. And she uses a beautiful image of a flashlight. She says, proximate purpose, if you think about it, it's related to the word approximate, right? And, and mm-hmm. proximate is like being in proximity. So think about a flashlight and you can get yourself to the end of that flashlight beam. And we, and I think this is an act of faith, right? We trust that when we get to that point, then the next little bit will be eliminated. Mm-hmm. And, and that is what proximate purpose is about. And, and in working as a coach with people over the last couple of years during this very destabilizing time in our, in our world, not just our country and in the church, that has really resonated with people. And, mm-hmm. and I remember in particular working with someone who they were doing some tr- strategic work and they were looking at their church's mission statement and they were looking at it and they said, this feels so remote and feels, it feels almost like it's written in Elizabethan English. It's so <laughs> beyond my ability to grasp. Yeah. And, 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 and that can often be the, the other term that you, you mentioned is aspirational purpose. So aspirational purpose kind of helps us know the right direction we're going. And -hmm. I think it has its place, but sometimes when you are in the middle of a complete lack of stability and, and comfort, and when life is overwhelming, the aspirational purpose feels so far away. Mm -hmm. And, and in some ways we need to kind of hold that lightly And but but proximate purpose gives us the agency to act and to take that next step. And I think the 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 section you mentioned actually invokes the movie Frozen (laughs) Two and this (laughs) wonderful song that Anna sings called "The Next Right Thing," and that is about 
proximate purpose. Uh-huh. All she knows that she need she needs to do is just take the next step, the next the next breath, make the next choice. Yeah. And I find that very empowering and I think it it can help clarify yeah. where we go. But you're a coach and mm-hmm. every coach in the world says, where do you want to be in five years? Where do you want to be in 10 years? And where do you want to be, you know, at age 60 or whatever? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's aspirational purpose, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, as Christians, we we have some clear guidance in that. Mm-hmm. You know, we are called to um, share the good news of Jesus and to build the reign of God here on earth and to the extent that we are able. We do that equipped by the Holy Spirit. It's certainly not our, our doing, but... You know, we have, I mean, I would say the, now this, this may be a thought that hasn't fully baked. So I'm just going to, you know, say it here, but (laughs) perhaps the great commission is our aspirational purpose, you know, Mm. go into all the world and make disciples. Yeah. And maybe the great commandment is the proximate purpose. Mm. We do that by loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Right. I mean, I, I I don't know, like, I want to think about that some more, but I do think the gospel story and, and the gospel itself, that message has a really important interplay of both of those. Yeah. We are absolutely. we are going somewhere. Um, uh-huh. you know, eschatology is not a big part of of, you know, what we preach on in the tradition that I'm in, but we we believe that you know, humanity, the world, God's creation is um is headed somewhere that is ultimately for the ultimate reconciliation uh of all things to God's self. So that's a heck of an aspirational purpose. Um, it can feel overwhelming, but but then yeah. also it gives us it's that stirring of the heart that that helps us to be inspired to act. Yeah, yeah. Um, that aspirational purpose can be a little daunting, but let me let right. me think of a few small things I can do today. That's right. Maybe That's a little right. less daunting. Mm-hmm. Um, and your last book before this one was about improvisation. Mm-hmm. Um. How does that relate to some of these things? And by the way, I'm about I'm, I'm about to ask you to apply these things to people who do creative work. So so I'm yes. give you that little that little bit of a warning. Yep. Yep. Good. Good. Yes, it's fun to see how the books kind of build on and and, and talk about aspirational purpose. Kind of set me on a trajectory. Mm-hmm. The 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 second book I wrote uh, was called God Improv and the Art of Living, and it's it's really I got very interested many years ago in improvisation improv as an art form but mm-hmm. also as a as a spiritual set of resources um and it, it's interesting i think hope the hope book and the improv book both kind of grow out of the same question which is the the same rough question which is wow the world is complicated yeah. and and there are so many things to to worry about and to wonder is this mine to do and and all of this and and improv and hope, I think they're connected because the idea of the next right thing is very built into improv. Sure. You know, yeah. the, the idea of yes and, which uh-huh. I think is one of the most kind of spiritually rich uh, resources yeah. from a quote unquote secular source that I can imagine, which is we receive what is offered and we build on it. And yeah. and I think scripture is full of people yes anding their way uh through into what God has as called di- them to do. As distinct from yes, but, or 
Exactly. Right. Setting up, you know, setting up barriers and and trying to run the other way. I mean, you know, Jonah is a great example of someone who's not wanting to yes and when he gets that commission, that call from yeah. God to go to Nineveh. He says, nope, <laughs> I'm going to go the exact opposite direction. And and one of the things I think we learn and glimpse in improv is you can really only block for so long when you're talking mm-hmm. about the Lord's call, you know, <laughs> that sooner or later, uh, you're going to, you're going to head to Nineveh. Um, but I also think the good news is that God works God's purposes out in spite of us when necessary. I mean, we are, you know, uh, I think God, God opts to, to work with our own flawed human humanness to bring mm-hmm. about God's purposes, but God is also not bound by those, um, those things. So, so I think improv that in and hope have that in common. Uh, but they're also both me, about what I'm going to do right this minute. That's right. That's right. There's a that's big, right. you know, history is stretching way back and way forward, maybe way forward. Hope but so. what am I going to do right this minute? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a very, and, and part of, I think I, I did a presentation yesterday for a group of, of folks who were talking about, addiction and recovery. And and that's a really important part of my own spiritual journey, personal journey. My father, uh, who is no longer with us, but was in recovery um, for most of my life. I mean, he mm-hmm. got sober when I was three and, and, and it's all one day at a time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up with that mantra and, and that's been very grounding for me, mm-hmm. that and the serenity prayer, which I think mm-hmm. is is just steeped in hope, but also in in the idea of improv and yes and because we let go of what we can't control, you know the the, mm-hmm. the serenity to accept what we can't change and to change what we can. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to know what that is sometimes, but it is clarifying to say this is my job. What can mm-hmm. I control today? What is mine to do today? And and that has been very very clarifying for me. Mm-hmm. Can you? Take just a minute to apply some of these principles to to the creative process. It's a great question. I I get sometimes because I'm I'm a coach and because I've written a couple of books, I will get questions from people, or people will say, "I really want to write a book, and mm-hmm. I I just don't think I could." And how do I even get started? And there's a great example, right, of of feeling like the idea of writing a book is is so huge and Mm -hmm. i think those of us who love the written word find the idea of being an author so i mean it's vaunted right i mean writing a book you know aspirational it is aspirational Mm -hmm. and it's how could i possibly right Mm -hmm. and you know personally i came most of my writing vocation i i traced to the early 2000s when blogging was everywhere Mm -hmm. and that was really where a lot of us found our expression and our our mojo to write was writing these you know blogs which are kind of short form and you put them out in the world and and you see what happens mm-hmm. and and i tell people you know uh don't think about writing a book write mm-hmm. one idea i can't remember where i i picked this up but somebody you know some writing class or something talked about word islands you know like like don't worry about stringing it all together just write this 
topic, however big or small it is. Mm -hmm. And then you write another one and then you figure out, like, I've never been one to sort of say, oh, here's my outline. I'm going to write to that. I need to write my way into Mm -hmm. the outline. And that was true of this book as well. And so one next right thing at a time, you find your way there. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody writes books. You write sentences. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Right. And, and if you, if you think about, again, that aspirational purpose, it will, you, you never get there. I mean, we've, we've all heard that expression, like, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Right. Well, and that's, that's how books are written. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that I find, again, very clarifying uh, to, to say, this is my job. And I would say the other thing, and this may be a little different than you're asking, but I think about it a lot as an author, because I think a lot of people who write books or want to write books get daunted by the idea of there's the book you want to write, and then there's the platform that you have to build, right? Mm -hmm. You need to be on social media, you need to have a certain number of followers, all of this kind of thing. And it it can feel very off-putting to people who, who write and just want to create and put Mm -hmm. their, you know, put their, their book out there and and see what happens and and what has helped me and i think there's a lot of ways to think about that and uh and maybe we could even critique whether it's fair to ask people who are by definition bookish because mm-hmm. they are writing books to also be promoters of yeah. their work and and i think that's that's a good conversation to have but for me it is all the same because what when i write a blog post or a newsletter article or even a social media post, what I'm doing is communicating an idea and hoping that others are reading it and responding. And so mm-hmm. to have this artificial, in my opinion, delineation between the creative work and then all the stuff you do to support the creative work, I just think that's a recipe for burnout. I mm-hmm. think people can tell when you're marketing to them as opposed to adding value to their lives by right. sharing your ideas with them. And yeah. and I think that you know, definitely relates to improv because I think it, it it's a way of reframing the task of writing and sharing our work. But I think it's also there there's something purposeful in it, which to me is what hope is wrapped up in is uh, you know, being about sharing ideas in a way that is of service to people. And the book is merely a means to do that. It's a it's a genre of writing. It's not the end all be all, at least not for me. Yeah. 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 Um, it's uh, you're talking about promotion in terms. Now, the truth is you still have on the proposal. There's that line. Tell me about your platform. Right. Um, and so I think we have to leave that aside and consider, as you said, um, we, I mean, was Tess, Tess Elliott said, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to misquote this, but um, uh, don't worry about the harvest, you know, tend to tend to your tend to your sowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. I completely that that was not the way Tess Elliott, it, it was sowing. It's harvest is not oh, your yeah. business. Sowing mm-hmm. is your business. Yep. And um, and as as you said, it I'm, I'm really glad you suggested that it's perhaps an artificial distinction between promotion and the work. Uh, if you can be generous in what you put out in the world, that's an act of hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is not necessarily rewarded with success. <laughs> that is right. That is right. Going back to your initial question about faithfulness, right? And and I think there's a really 
interesting conversation happening right now. And, and I have writer friends and we talk about this a lot of valuing our work and wanting to be compensated for it because um, it's not something that everyone can do, mm-hmm. but, and, and to acknowledge that on the one hand, stewardship of our own time, of our own energy, and also this impulse toward, as you say, being generous and saying this, I want to be of service. Mm-hmm. I, I want to, to put something out in the world that is going to um, help people for the living of these days. And mm-hmm. so that to me, you know, I think having hope as an overlay of that is, is really helpful because it, it does mean I'm, I'm just called to show up to the page, to the screen, to the mm-hmm. book signing, you know, whatever. And, and to put, put it out there. That's all, that's all that's mine. You know, that T.S. Eliot quote. Yeah. It, it, oh. The rest is not our business. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if this is how this may not count as a transition. Maybe I'm changing the subject, but but because we're running a little bit low on time, I I want to I want to talk about a a moment in your book that really was encouraging to me, and that is you referred to, to a writer that you go to when whenever um, there's disastrous news in the news on social media, whatever. You've got somebody you go to who frames things, hopefully get, you know, makes you think maybe things aren't as bad as they seem. And uh, you didn't identify that writer um, for some reason. Maybe you, can exp- maybe you can mention why you didn't identify the writer, but that's not the point. The point is you had a friend then say, when, when you mentioned this to your friend, you said, well, uh, how's his track record? Like when, when he offers a hopeful perspective, how often is he right? And you say, as it, the more you thought about it, the less you thought that was relevant. That track record was not relevant. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah, I was brought up short. The reason I didn't identify the writer is because he writes about politics and I didn't, he writes from a particular partisan perspective gotcha. and I didn't want to kind of muddy yeah. the waters with, well, yeah. I don't agree with that perspective, but mm-hmm. um yeah, I I feel like, and, and we probably all have these voices in our lives, I hope that we do, and we hope we can find them, voices that that we, and, and I'm humbled at the times I think I have been this for others. In fact, I can think of times where I've put something out there and people have said, oh, I've been waiting for you to weigh in on this. And mm-hmm. and as I say that, I feel, wow, that's that's humbling to be mm-hmm. that for, for else for others. But what I say about that that particular writer and and the reason I took the chance to quote, I mean, it's kind of a story that's very indirect because I'm not talking about the person in particular, but he he likes to say that hope is an ethic. And I think that's why I mm-hmm. I lifted him up in the book is because I think that's a really intriguing way of thinking about hope. You said ethic, E-T-H-I-C. Right. And 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 there's another section in the book, I think, that that evokes this too, the idea, there's a philosopher named Kwame Appiah who talks about what he calls useful fictions. Mm -hmm. And these are things that we tell ourselves that may or may not be true, but they are things that help us live in the way that we would want to live, live with integrity, live with hopefulness. Mm -hmm. And and it's, it's a kind of a fun, here's another connection between hope and improv is 
I have done this at times, you know, when somebody cuts you off on the freeway, I automatically think, you know, what a jerk. But a useful fiction would be, I wonder what's going on in their life that they feel like they're in such a big hurry. Mm -hmm. And they could, that could be completely wrong. They could just be a jerk, but I'm different by living that useful fiction to use Apia's term here. But that is hope as an ethic is I'm a different person by looking at this in a different way. Yeah. I think I sometimes am reluctant to weigh in on issues because I'm afraid I might be proven wrong. Yeah. And it was really helpful to me to, to see this person in your life who speaks, you know, whether or not their prognostications are correct or whether or not they're making prognostications, they're orienting you in the right direction. Mm. And, yeah. and I mean, that, that term orientation, is that's just all that means is facing the right way. Right. Well, and, and Jonathan, you just helped me make a connection, too, between what we think of. I mean, you think about the biblical prophets, right? Mm-hmm. Our colloquial understanding of the word prophet is you predict something right? Mm -hmm. Prophets. I mean, Mm -hmm. but that's not what biblical prophecy is. It is exactly what you describe, right? An orientation Mm -hmm. toward, toward hope or toward Mm -hmm. judgment, you know, like we messed up and and we are, we are feeling the effects of that. And we need to turn back towards, towards God and towards God's covenant. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I don't think this person would consider themselves a prophet, but they are a prophet in that sense of when I read works just like his, not just his, but I think, oh, I can I can face the day and do what's mine to do because mm-hmm. he has pointed me in the direction. And it and it it's irrelevant whether, you know, this bill got passed and or didn't get passed, you know, whatever the kind of anxiety of the day is, this gives me what I need to yeah to move forward. And how is a useful fiction different from al- alternative facts? <laughs> I may have even uh, acknowledged that that is a, a dangerous kind of thing. <laughs> you did. Um, I was just giving you a chance yeah. to explain yourself. Yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's important. Um, I think in a in a time when truth is so contested, mm-hmm. and we have such a wealth of choices to turn to that will tell us exactly what we want to hear. It's a good question. I would say there's a little bit of the proof is in the pudding. And, mm-hmm. and if I, you know, and I think of useful fiction sometimes in a, in a very personal kind of way, like these are internal mm-hmm. yeah. dialogues with myself that allow me to, to live, to live better. And I, I would probably say as a, as a Christian, as one who, again, as Jesus commands us to, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, that's probably the ultimate yardstick is, is this an alternative fact that just confirms kind of my own biases? Mm-hmm. Or is this a useful fiction that allows me to live um, a loving in a loving manner toward my neighbor yeah. and toward myself and toward God? Yeah, I, I love the the example you gave in, in the book. I like even better than the example of, you know, responding to my cutting you off. And that was you're in, in the Starbucks or some coffee shop and a man in front of you. This was a true story, not an imagination. Yes. Right? Oh, yeah. That, this happened. Right. A man in front of you was making this elaborate order. Yeah. Six coffees, all kinds of different drinks. He was wearing a, wearing a suit. And this was a Saturday morning. And 
and you've made the choice instead of being aggravated, which you did for a little while, I think. Yeah. Um, to say, maybe there's, you, you came up with a story for, and by the way, I think your story sounds like it might be right. Yeah. That maybe he was I, going to a funeral. That's right. That's right. I thought, why would somebody be wearing a suit on a Saturday morning and getting a bunch of drinks? And that was what I came up with is he is, you know, for, for people who have lost everything, um, he's going to bring them just exactly, you know, your world has fallen apart because your loved one is, is no longer with us, but I'm going to give you a little bit of comfort and it changed everything. And that to me, you know, um, that's a harmless, in fact, it, in, in some ways it, it is there's only a benefit to my having that kind of yeah. useful fiction. So. Well, so two things about that that I found interesting. One is um, the story seems pretty believable. I mean, the 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 story you the fiction you came up with seems pretty believable, and it was available to you because you quit you you took a step away from that tendency just to my immediate aggravation. I'm now going to have you know, what kind of what kind of jerk wears a suit on a Saturday morning, right? That, that's right. one way to to tell that story. And another is what kind of person wears a suit on a Saturday morning? Maybe it's someone who's going to a funeral, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, the, I feel like your openness to fiction, to fictionalize may have opened you up to actually see what was true about that situation. Oh, true. Right. On the well, other hand, yeah. as you said, what if it turns out that it wasn't true? You're you're still oriented in the right direction. Uh, yeah, I've lost. And we're back at Potoglam, aren't we? In Potoglam, yes. saying uh, if if it turns out that that this underground world really is all there is, well, my imaginary world. If it turns out Narnia is imaginary, then, then my imaginary world looks yours all to pieces. That's right. That's right. Well, and and I, I just last week I was reminded of that wonderful Rachel Held Evans quote: "Is you know Christianity is the story I'm willing to risk being wrong about." Mm. I mean that. You know, if I'm going to um, make a decision about what's going on in that coffee shop, I want it to be in the direction of my offering grace yeah. rather than judgment. And and that, and interestingly, I think that's another place where hope and improv kind of of meet one another because that is a that's an improv game of what else could this be? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's called props where you have like a something and you turn it into something else, you know, a pool noodle becomes, you know, whatever. And, uh, and that's what this is. What else could this be? Yeah. And that's a, that's a hopeful thing to, I can, I can look at this in a different way. Yeah. So good. All right. Let me ask you one last question. Who are the writers who make you want to write? Mm. Oh, that's a good question because some of them just kind of fill me with despair because they're so good. And I think, Mm -hmm. Oh, I could never be like that. Um, They don't count. If they feel with despair, they don't. That's right. That's right. Those are not the, uh, not the ones. You know, actually, the first couple of people that come to mind are musicians, and mm-hmm. I, I don't write music at all, but uh-huh. um, I love David Wilcox's work, yeah. and um, Carrie Newcomer is also a singer-songwriter whom I whom I really love. Um, those those folks, and they're both good storytellers in yeah, their, in their yeah. writing. I, I know David Wilcox's work. I don't know that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... So those are are beautiful. Uh, I love Mary Oliver's poetry, and and sometimes I because I don't write poetry. I think maybe that's why I also like the singer songwriters. I'm like I'm not even trying to write in this genre. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, both of them really yeah. uh, bring a lot. And I will say 
this is more of a craft type. Uh, I don't want to write like him, but I read him when I need some inspiration is there's a, gotta get his name. Yeah. There's an uh, author in Austin whose name is Austin, Austin Cleon. Okay. And um, I've got his three books there, but there's um, Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work and Keep Going are his three books about creativity and the the, the writing process. And I just pick those up sometime when I just need a little, yeah. a little burst of inspiration. Good to know. Well, Marianne McKibben Dana, thank you so much for being here. This has been a lot of fun talking to you. Thank it you, was John. was a big encouragement to me. So, Thank you. I, I love to hear that, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for the chance to be here. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.